Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. We're going to talk about game design today because we think game design is cool and worth talking about. I'm Rowan. I'm Blue. And we're going to talk about weapon durability. Weapon durability is one of the most popular systems in games. Last year when Breath of the Wild came out, it was one of everyone's favorite features in the game. Well, it wasn't, but it's one of my favorite features in a lot of games. I like weapon durability like quite a lot, and most people don't seem to. I like it because a lot of games have an issue where... Attacking is sort of a free action, and thus a lot of other options never really get to demonstrate themselves. But for me, weapon durability helps games use more of their options. I don't know if I would say I like weapon durability as much as you would, but I definitely think it adds a layer to the game. A game isn't just about doing something that's easy. Uh, In a lot of ways, I believe there's a quote from somewhere which we couldn't verify the source of, but it goes something along the lines of a lot of what makes a game is the complication along the way to a simple task. And that's a really good point. It's a system that I feel improves the games that I play, but it's not something that in the moment I like. It's actively unpleasant because it's punishing you for what other games don't really bother with. And so we're going to look at five different games that all use weapon durability to help enhance the experience. And we hope that it helps you understand why games might use these systems and help you understand how it helps you get a better experience from the game, even if upfront. It can be a bit unpleasant. So there will be examples that are bad for weapon durability. We are obviously going to cover ones that we think do things right. But it is worth mentioning that in some of the cases where it's not done interestingly, you either get one of two extremes. You either get weapon durability where the durability doesn't matter because your weapon never need you never need to worry uh, about what state your weapon is in. You're always going to have enough durability to get back to town, and it's just another thing to do in town, another item on your shopping list or whatever. Yeah, but that's weapon durability is tax more or less. Yeah. And in the opposite case where it's a bit too punishing, like any small mistake means that you lose your weapon for a short period of time. Fewer games go in that direction nowadays. A lot of games tend to err away from that kind of feeling, but that's definitely one way to do weapon durability. And you don't really want it to be that punishing. It's supposed to be something that adds tension to the game, as we're going to talk about, but not a fail state in and of itself. And so our first game is going to be The Witcher 3. And The Witcher 3 is a 2015 game that was fairly popular around the world by CD Projekt Red, a Polish studio. And it's an open world action RPG where you play as a magical mercenary whose job is to hunt monsters. And you are out there looking for a certain character as a detective style. And along the way, you end up doing a lot of missions for people because being a mercenary, you earn your money by fighting things for people. And The Witcher 3 system, honestly, when I was coming in to play this for the podcast, I wasn't super keen because I felt The Witcher 3 was kind of bland initially with its system. It felt like it was going to be one of those weapon repair as simple tax type systems. But I was really impressed by early game. You're into enough situations where that tax is high enough that you can't afford to do everything you want. And thus, it helps influence your choices when you solve quests and things. You have to choose money more than being the nice guy or being the asshole sometimes. What did you feel about this system? I think that The Witcher 3 kind of took the hard road. Instead of finding something interesting to do with the durability system, they looked at it from its textbook description and just kind of made it work based on numbers and balance. They just balanced it out so that you are likely to run close to your durability limit on your weapons and sometimes your armor by the end of missions, as opposed to saying you have this very large pool or you have a too small pool for durability. They wanted to balance the line between you should always be concerned about this. It shouldn't be your major concern. It shouldn't even be your secondary concern. It's maybe 10 down the list of things that you should be worried about anytime you're in a dungeon. But because of the way they did the number balancing, it's always there. And so it always adds another level of tension to your experience. Anytime you're in a dungeon, anytime you're on a hunt for any of the monsters in the game, you have to think to yourself, do I need to go back to town real quick to get this repaired. It also means that being able to repair on the go in case you do forget 
is important. And the way The Witcher 3 handles this is that they give you items called weapon repair kits or armor repair kits. And there are different grades of rarity that repair more. And these become valuable. In, in most other games, they'd be nice, but not essential to your gameplay. In other games, that's the kind of thing I leave in my chest in the shared storage space back in town. But in The Witcher 3, I found myself kind of hoarding it and needing it just in case. Mm, and some of The Witcher 3's dungeons are just long enough that you might get that warning sign right towards the end. So it's a bit of a relief when you just have the tool at hand for it. And it's a great bit of stress when you don't know if your weapon's going to make it out with you, which happened to me in one of the early longer dungeons, actually. I didn't know whether I'd get away with keeping my good weapon or not. And sometimes you just start having backup weapons, which works somewhat but there is a weight limit and so and even when it does work early on in the game you don't have very many options for backup weapons no you don't i mean the game throws a lot of swordsmen at you so that i assume it's partially to prepare for this moment like if you did have your sword break in the middle of a long dungeon there is an option for you you don't feel good about it but you can use it yeah and i think a lot of these games all some of them particularly have an issue where they're afraid of you running out of things and try and provide you a solution just in case i think it's important here to note that the option you get off of the random enemies don't stack up to your actual main weapon. No, they're usually a few tiers down from whatever you're currently having. So it's a massive downgrade if you did ever go down. And for the most part, you never will. But it's a system that works in getting you nearly to the point of being a problem. And one of the things that worked with that a lot, I think, is that it helps establish a good rhythm to the game because by needing to repair your weapons often, it helps you go back to town where everything interesting happens in these games. And it sort of stops you from accidentally spending too much time in one of the less interesting parts, which is unfortunately exploring the massive wide expanses of the game. That is subjective. It is subjective. We, bo we both tend to agree with this, but... But it is important to note that that is kind of subjective. For some players, that's some of the better parts of the game. Yes, but I think The Witcher 3 definitely, it holds its own strength as being its townsfolk, its quests, and going out and yeah, doing those quests. Definitely, definitely. And if you avoid town, you won't do those things. Yeah. And so having the system naturally bring you back to town where it believes, hopefully, that its strengths lie, it sort of helps maintain a sort of flow that suits the game most. There's also the typical trope in a lot of RPG-style games where you load yourself up with quests, leave the town for 10 hours, and then come back and cash them all in. That does not tend to be the way The Witcher 3 plays out. And one of the systems that influences that is the weapon durability. It's not just the weapon durability that influences that, but it's one of the ways, you know, it's one of the tools that the developers have to drive you back towards the town, the people, the interesting areas in the game. And that helps keep the pacing nice. Like if you try to cash in a dozen quests in The Witcher, you would be treated with like 45 minutes of cutscene, which they're good cutscenes, but having them all back to back like that would be probably fairly unpleasant. And you'd probably feel like you've lost track of a few of the details along the way. Especially if you have a mission that's transitioning, that you had to go back to deliver something that went on to the next step. It, it would be so easy to lose track of that if you just had 10, 10 quests being cashed in at once. So The Witcher 3... So yeah, I really like the Witcher 3 system, even though it on the surface seems like a less interesting and one of the more dull implementations. It's an extra string that the developers have to tune your actions to help make sure that you get a strong play experience and that you're less likely to deviate too strongly from that and make yourself have a worse time to some extent. And as a quick final note to The Witcher 3 as well, is that the rate at which your armor degrades in durability as compared to your weapons is a lot slower. So you get yourself in a position where you're watching your weapon durability quite a bit throughout a mission, but you may not look at you know your chest piece, your boots as much. And so I actually found myself in a situation where after a reasonably short mission, I happened to glance at my armor durability and went, oh, that's about to dip into the yellow range. I need to look at that. So I can imagine a situation where you don't notice that before a long mission, that comes up, you take a couple extra unnecessary hits, and your armor just breaks on you. That's interesting. I feel like most players might be too lazy and just always click the repair all button, like me. Well, I mean, you mentioned before that money was a concern at one point. 
that definitely was the case for me as well. And so I prioritized my weapon over my other gear. Also, I was thinking to myself, I might get a replacement for this down the line. Can I last hold out until I get a replacement for this armor piece? In which case, I save gold by not repairing this right now. I always sold to be able to click repair all equipped. I see, I see. But it's interesting you talk about how a lot of the Weapon Jubilee focus was on weapons because our next title exclusively looks at weapons in its durability. And that's the Fire Emblem series. Now, we're cheating a little bit today and we're going to talk about Fire Emblem 7 or just called Fire Emblem in the West, released in 2004, Fire Emblem Awakening from 2013 and Fire Emblem Fates from 2015 because they all use a lot of fundamentally similar systems, but they all deal with this system in slightly different ways and those differences I think are really interesting. It, it would almost be nuanced if it weren't for the fact that it actually does change a lot of how you view weaponry in these games. Yeah, so let's talk about the 2004 Fire Emblem game, which was the first for the series in the West, and it has a very simple system. You get weapons, they have X amount of uses. Often a lot of common weapons have about 40 uses, and rare weapons have about 20 uses. Each use is exactly one hit in combat. There's no... So Witcher's numbers are fairly abstract. You get like X hits per point of durability. In Fire Emblem, all the numbers are really manageable. And you have some weapons that are very common, like the iron weapons, that you've got more or less enough that even if they break, you've got more. But characters have often very special weapons that they only have 20 of, and they only get one of that weapon for the game, maybe a replacement very late. And what's really great about this system is that it helps make every action something valuable. There's no attacking as a free action nonsense in this game. Every time you've got to think, what is this weapon worth? What is the best weapon for this situation? And all the choices have a cost. And I think that's something that really helps Fire Emblem edge out being interesting. How familiar are you with Fire Emblem 7, the first GBA one that came out in English? Not not in great detail. I know enough about it to be able to talk about some of the durability stuff, but I, I definitely had more experience in the following two, which we will talk about as well. Yeah, well, before we move on to those, I want to just add a few extra nuances that make this very different to Awakening particularly. So the first is that shops are on individual maps. So shopping for new weapons, and thus new sources of weapons to degrade, is an action that takes place during a combat, as opposed to being just an option between individual quests. So that makes acquiring weapons a strategic choice that impacts your battles. And money is a very limited resource in general in the 2004 Fire Emblem. And in Awakening and later games, it's a little more plentiful. It's never infinite by any means, but... It is, if you grind. Well, that's actually a good point. It is infinite. It is, So, 2004 Fire Emblem, every weapon and your access in total is ultimately limited. And that really makes everything a strong choice. Your character's special weapons always stay special. The weakest weapons in the game always stay useful because they have more uses and easier access. So, everything gets to be used for a long part of the game. Right till the end of the Fire Emblem 7, you'll be using your original iron swords because you'll have lots and they're useful for trash enemies. And I think that's like one of the key successes to the 2004 Fire Emblem. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things where there's a lot of factors that go into why time is limited in that game. And I don't mean time as in real world time, but time within the game, time that your characters can do these fights, can can shop for these things. All of that's very limited. You tend to get one shot at lots of things unless you just save and reload. But in terms of your character's through line, they have these number of battles they're going to go through and that's it. And some of these weapons are pretty rare when you get a character with them. So your character's identity can often be limited to a limited use of items, which helps make you choose things very carefully. Awakening, which came out in 2013, does a lot to change up the formula. But one of the biggest things that it does is make character permadeath optional. And I guess I didn't actually say this. So Fire Emblem games are a series of strategy RPGs that have heavily featured permadeath as a key feature from them from the first game up till around, well, up till the 3DS games. And that's just important to note because that carries a lot of the identity for the games, which is to say limited resources, quote unquote, which includes your characters. Which includes your characters. And we'll talk about this in a later episode, but the fact that characters can die permanently and that stopped being the case for certain entries changes the design and structure a lot about them. But for Awakening, for today's discussion, it changes a few of the key things. You can grind in Awakening. 
which means that you have functionally limitless money, although practically you just have as much as you want if you want to make the effort for it. You can buy weapons in between missions and you can upgrade weapons. But weapons still have limited uses, which it keeps, but I feel it's a lot less relevant. And as opposed to the original Fire Emblem 7, we've got, well, original's a bad word to use for a seventh game in a series. <laughs> but as for Fire Emblem 7, characters with special weapons, those special weapons had limited uses. In Awakening, characters with special weapons like Crumb and Lucina with the Falchion, Falchion. They have unlimited uses of those weapons, making these very special weapons feel incredibly mundane. It was weird because they felt more powerful because, yeah, the stat line puts them above your typical iron sword. But at the same time, you could give them better weapons. The developers couldn't give you a good permanent weapon because that breaks the design space. You can't have the best weapon in the game being a weapon that you can use infinitely in a game where it limits the things. Exactly. So that was a very interesting kind of back and forth in that system there. It felt like one of the directions the game was going in was to make your good weapons low enough in their limited use that you might run out of them in a single encounter. But it never really dared to go that low in terms of the numbers. And you always had force of number of people on your side to be able to overcome that problem. Yep, yeah, and you can get away in the other ones with not really using your special weapons very often at all, but they definitely give you an edge. One of the things that I find really interesting in Awakening particularly though is it's the forging system, which is not necessary to engage in too deeply, but basically you can upgrade these limited use weapons for paying a lot of money, which is easy enough to acquire, but it still makes you end up making very powerful weapons that you are very careful with using because of these limited options, these limited uses. As, and as we said before, there is grinding in the game. So unfortunately and ultimately, it's not money slash finite resource that you're losing, but time. And that does work on some level. Time is something that players want to keep track of. They want to keep a hold of that. But yeah, definitely. So one of the extra little one of the extra little wrinkles in this system is that when a character dies, if permadeath is on, they lose all the items they're holding. So this means that between the option of possibly dying, but using less of a powerful weapon, or definitely surviving, but using one use of a very powerful weapon that you want to save, you'll almost always want to pick that powerful weapon usage. But Fire Emblem Awakening kind of undercuts that. If you pick the non-permadeath mode, you end up being allowed to make some very foolish decisions a lot more often, which kind of undermines these systems a little bit. But moving on to fate. So Awakening has this sort of halfway battle between is it going to really commit hardcore to letting players not use permadeath or using permadeath? Fates, the game, the games that came out in 2015 featuring two versions, one very hard version and one version much more like Awakening. This game had a huge change to weapon durability in that it removed it. And you'd think that eliminates it from this discussion, but because the series up to that point had been more or less defined by its adherence to these sort of systems, it's interesting seeing how that changes the feeling of Fates. So what I disliked about Fates' system was that on one hand, weapons were more interesting. Each weapon had a good upside and a good downside. On the flip side, though, it meant that more or less every combat, you would choose more or less the right weapon for the situation without fail, which I like being forced to make suboptimal choices thanks to limitations. And I never felt like I ran into that in Fates very much. I think Fates is a great example of what we mentioned earlier, that part of what makes a game is the complications you put in the way. With doing away with weapon durability, they try to add complications. Like you said, some weapons have downsides, but without the fact that you lose weapons, and the fact that they really didn't want to commit to punishing weapon choices, it didn't feel that bad. You just always found the one that worked for you. In my case, that was always just take the average one. The average strength weapon with no real up or downside is always going to be the best. You didn't have to min-max yourself very hard. That was, you always had enough damage and it was completely acceptable to just use the middle of the road weapon. And that took a lot of interesting choices out of the game. And I felt much the same for the most part. There were a few moments when it's like, oh, I'm using the high crit character. I've got my supports near me. All the stats are boosted by various factors. So going for the crit seems like a good move. But mostly in those situations, I would have been fine just using the middle of the row weapon anyway. And so through this progression, you sort of see a little bit of diluting of this intensity. And to be fair to Awakening and Fates, they don't become worse games. They become very different games. Their focuses lie on more character growth rather than minute to minute or turn to turn strategy choices. They become much more about overarching character development 
development and that changes some fans do not like it some fans like it very much because now the series is more popular than ever but it's definitely a really interesting arc for a series to go through i feel yeah absolutely and we may touch on more of it in a future episode as we alluded to before it's not really may we will touch on this more yeah and hopefully it's a promise it's a promise and thinking of promises riviera the promised land is a 2004 rpg by sting and it's a very traditional rpg story complete with an amnesiac protagonist but what really separates it is that there's no character levels but characters develop by learning skills and stats from their weapons and those weapons have limited amounts of uses. So this is your first time playing Riviera the Promised Land, and it's it's not one of my favorite play experiences, but it's one of my favorite games to think about and talk about. What did you think of it? Let's I'm gonna try to be a bit more on topic here, but in general, what I thought of it is that it is not afraid to take its time. And I think that definitely comes into play with the weapon durability system, if we're gonna be talking specifically about that, which we are. It opens up fairly simply. Like, the weapon durability is there. In a lot of ways, it resembles what you can expect from Fire Emblem. Although, no, no, Fire Emblem definitely came before this, right? Fire Emblem beat this by about 20 years. No, by about 15. Good. Just, just so we're clear, at first glance, it looks like a relatively standard durability system. You have a certain number of uses on your weapons. And then they add a weird wrinkle on top of it, where you only level up if you master a weapon. And that made me squint and go, okay, I see what you're doing. That's kind of interesting. And then they tell you, and not everyone can use every weapon. And that made it a lot more interesting. And then what really tripped it over the line for me was that... and. Characters can use the same weapon in different ways. And that just made me gawk at the screen and go, wow, that's cool. And it works really intuitively when you think about the characters. You've got the main character who's your standard hero type and they get a magic wand and they bash people with it. It's quite impressive. You've got your standard healing lady who's like very nice and supportive and all those things you expect from your priest character and she picks up the wand and casts healing magic except she's also your rapier user in a lot of ways yeah she's your rapier user too and you know she's elegant and refined so of course she uses the rapier much better and each character has their weapon specialties and so each character has a different amount they want to use each weapon in combat and the extra layer of wrinkles that we talked about before is that you can only bring four into combat at once so the fact that each character uses each weapon differently differently means that you actually have more than four options in battle for your characters which really gives it a lot of interesting preparation depth it's very neat that number limitation as well as on top of that you can only have a limited inventory size to begin with which you hit very quickly yep you are constantly cycling out of weapons from almost the first hour i think yeah absolutely and that's fine in context because the game is constantly giving you a lot of the lowest tier items that are worthwhile for your current area which means that like in fire emblem a little bit it keeps your special weapons special but it also means that you're not going to run out of options entirely which i think is a fine compromise for this sort of system your special weapons are also in some ways detrimental they have low amounts of uses normally and that's bad because you only have so many weapons what if a fight drags on you can only bring four in there do you really want to bring one of your four as something you can only use three times that's a fascinating kind of tug of war of desires in the game and some of them are very limited usage so early on in the game you get a weapon called the dragon slayer which deals a lot of damage to dragons but not every character in your party can use it so it's not necessarily a huge benefit to bring it into that battle but the amount of damage it does deal is so huge that it's hard to not do so as well and then you get extra interesting scenarios when the dragon slayer is down in durability Do you still decide to bring that just for the couple of hits it can do? Or is that the point where you consider cycling that out of your inventory? That's a very interesting question. And the amount of damage that it's dealing is really huge. Like if a normal hit would deal 100 damage, it's going to deal about 700. So it is exponentially more powerful against its subtype. But if you only have three uses left and you need four hits, then it's not going to really do its full job in combat. And then when it's only got one use left, it's a great tug of war. And it really works strongly in the game. 
That that feels so bad. Like if you get down to one use left on this, and you want to put this weapon to rest properly, you want to give it its battle glory end, but you can't justify it. That's that's a great moment, I think. It is. And one of the things that I really like about this system is that it lets the game get much more use out of all its items because you can use the number of uses as your balancing metric. For instance, in the first major dungeon of the game, there's a point where you get an option between one of three weapons and you get more or less the highest normal tier version of that weapon. So the version of the weapon you'll be using in the final dungeon as the commonly acquired item. But you're getting it about 20 hours early, but you only get 15 uses of it, which means that you have to carefully decide how you want to ration this weapon out among many battles. It actually reminds me of a common occurrence in video games now, where there are a lot of video games that will start you off powerful and then strip away that power as a way of showing you what you could what you're going to have later on in the game getting you hooked on that early with the system that riviera has it's just so elegantly done they can just give you a weapon that you're not going to see for 20 hours and that doesn't matter because oh yay you managed to at best you will skate through 15 fights that's nothing in the span of the game. Well, you say skim through 15 fights, It's you'd really only be getting through about three. Yeah, you really wouldn't get through. As, as I said, at best 15, you really wouldn't get that because you the, the weapons aren't good enough that you're going to one-hit them. And so we've like really exclusively talked about the weapons in combat, but like with The Witcher, it's not just about the weapons themselves, it's how they interact with the economy of the game. And Riviera doesn't have money to give you. What Riviera offers you is at the end of combats, you get a resource called TP, trigger points, which you can use to interact with the map. So in any other game, opening a chest would be a free action. In Riviera, you have to spend a resource to open the treasure chest. Which could be a trap. Which could be a trap and often is at least partially a trap. And these traps are pretty severe. If you fail a quick time event in regards to a trap, you lose a permanent stat point, usually. A percentage of max HP or a percentage of strength. So it's quite a risk every time that you interact with the world and environment. But if you don't ever interact with it, then you're never going to get particularly cool or interesting weapons and even the interactions with the world is so fun because there's character building so it's worth adding that riviera is it's a typical rpg but it has a strong emphasis on dating sim like elements there are a number of girls that you add to your party and a lot of interactions are really an opportunity to raise or lower your affection between them all and it works really well like it's a fun dating simish type experience on top of being a really clever rpg and the characters are all pretty fun you didn't see more than two of them i believe right no no i did not unfortunately which means you haven't seen the best characters yet that is tends to be how it goes unfortunately i might get more time with it but yeah it's so interesting based on even the little i've played yeah and so you've got things competing you've got you want to use weapons in battle to use them as efficiently as possible so as to not waste them you get powerful weapons which you want to save for important fights but if you don't use your powerful weapons in normal fights then you'll never get to get the most tp which means that you might miss out on the potential to get even more better weapons so you have to make a lot of choices where there isn't usually a clear right answer this might also be a good time to bring up another economy thing in the game uh so once you master a weapon and level up from mastery of it you gain access to the overskill of that weapon now what that means is you can meet out the uses of a powerful weapon if you have the overskill and only use the durability as part of the overskill if you wanted and overskills are more or less like powerful techniques so they're in any other game like weapon skills and you use a shared bar to actually activate them and they're quite powerful if you don't use them you're not going to get through combat yep they're definitely part of what the game expects you to dish out in terms of damage. On average, I'd say they would you'd be able to get double to quintuple the amount of damage off of an overskill, depending on how much overskill you use. Yeah, and so each character has certain weapons that they're better at, and so they would use more or less of the meter per different type weapon. So the protagonist, because he's a JRPG protagonist, is good at swords. So he would use three sections of the meter to do an overskill sword attack. But the elegant rapier girl 
only uses one if it's a sword, but three if it's a rapier to attack. And the archer girl, she would use three for a bow, but less for other weapons and so on. And the protagonist has access to a special weapon that has a road that breaks the bar entirely, actually, and stops it being used. But that's not really relevant to this discussion and really just veering off a bit. But there is one issue with this system that is really sad, and that is that the game is afraid of you having to earn these stats and skill ups from combat where you can lose durability. And so it offers a practice mode. So with a bit of context first, the game doesn't give you the ability to grind normally. As you progress through the game, you have a number of encounters and that's it. And every encounter has dialogue, narrative important, well, not narrative importance, but it has narrative context. There is always a conversation before an encounter. And so every every combat matters and is relevant to the adventure, unlike random encounters in other games. However, practice mode. Practice mode is a mode where you're allowed to pick, kind of pick, because they randomize the enemy for you, but effectively pick because you can keep re-rolling it. And then just play a quote-unquote consequence-free fight. And in this consequence-free fight, you do not lose weapon durability. However, you do gain weapon experience. Unfortunately, the game is designed and balanced around you leveling up occasionally outside of the narrative fights or, or the main fights in the practice mode. And, and unfortunately... The system is built around the assumption that every fight matters, and so it's fine with taking its time to make animations cool and interesting and fancy, which means that grinding up weapon skills takes a long time, even if you only need five or six uses of a weapon to get its respective skill. It's the only kind of wrinkle in the design, honestly. It really is. And at the early game, it's not so bad. But as the game progresses, it's more and more clearly balanced around you having done a lot of the grinding to the point that it more or less expects you to get your skills from every weapon that you run into with every character that can use them. And that just slows down everything this game has going for it so much. Which is quite unfortunate because I do feel like it has a lot going for it. It has one of the most unique movement systems I've seen in a game in a long time. Yeah, so it's dumb room by room, and then within each room, you can look for all the trigger points that you can trigger. Yeah, and you don't get to move around the room. You just move up, down, left, right. Just move and you go to the things. Neat. It's very sort of menu-driven in that sense. I think neat is my adjective for the game. It's a very great descriptor. It's neat. It has a lot of systems that interplay with each other, has a lot of mechanics that tie into characterization and at best narrative. Even with the little I've played, you can tell that a lot of care was put into how that was crafted. And I think it's a bit unfortunate that they couldn't just commit fully to low amounts of grinding or no amount of grinding, ideally, and just have this fixed encounter rate throughout the game. But it is what it is. If you ever want to check out something neat that's just well put together mechanically and design-wise, Riviera the Promised Land, definitely something I can recommend. Yeah, and I think it might be worth having a quick discussion about why practice mode might be in there to some extent, because it's very common of its ideas, and part of me wonders if it's just there out of an obligation to increase the length of the game a little bit. I... I think personally, it feels to me as if practice mode is there for fear of locking players into a situation they cannot climb out of. It's the it's the failsafe. Without practice mode, they can conceivably imagine a scenario where the player simply does not have the required levels or stats to beat an enemy. With practice mode, they can almost 100% guarantee that the player can never be in that position. Yeah, and it's a little bit unfortunate because the game carries this great arcade aesthetic through a lot of its moments. Like, a lot of the times you do a small thing and it will tell you, you know, through a rock, gain 500 points. Yeah. And these points do almost nothing for yep. you. And it seems sort of sensible that with this arcade aesthetic, that having actual fail points and having to redo some things might be very viable. Although it probably would bring the game to being very tedious in a different way if that was how it worked, I guess. I, I do wonder if we could, like, if designed with a couple more modern sensibilities, if we could overcome practice mode. If, for example, you had a golden tanuki suit effectively in the game if you've failed an encounter three times give them the option to you know give them an infinite use weapon that they can use or something like that for one battle and the game half has that yeah if you die against a boss you can retry 
and after a certain point, each time you retry, the boss gets weaker and weaker, to the point that the boss is more or less automatically defeated if you sit there retrying long enough. Maybe they should have just committed to that. It's possible, right? Yeah, but you can't do that in normal encounters, I believe. Yeah, like, that's what I mean. If they just did that for normal encounters as well, that could have been an option. And the other option would be that normal encounters could be failable, but you could progress in different ways. That unfortunately explodes the design space a bit too much, I think. It probably does. That is probably unviable. But I mean, it's such a shame because the game has such strong systems and it's something that is so close to succeeding in such a strong way and just misses the mark by so little. As I said, the game is neat. And honestly, when you think about the limitations that they might be facing, practice mode is one of the neatest ways they could do this. Yeah, it's a good solution to a problem they have, and maybe they balance too much in favor of it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a very good summary, I think. They might have just overbalanced for, for assuming that practice mode will be an important part for players. So, thinking of like balancing towards things, our next title is something that balanced out of the system we're going to talk about, in fact. So the next game we're going to be talking about is Firefall. Firefall was developed by Red 5 Studios, was released in 2014, but a lot of what I'm going to be talking about here is going to be from the beta. And I say what I'm going to be talking about because Rowan has not played Firefall and does not currently have the opportunity to do so. Firefall is... It's a dead game. Yeah, unfortunately, it's discontinued. Um, so a bit about what it is. Firefall is an action MMORPG. And what I mean by that is it's a massively multiplayer online RPG style game. But instead of click and number menu system to activate abilities, it's a third person shooter primarily. It can be first person. You can change that. But it's effectively a third person shooter MMORPG. So your primary method for fighting within the game are with your guns and with some skills that you can equip. You can equip up to three skills at a time as well as one ultimate ability that you charge over a period of time. Similar to how Overwatch works. Now, the guns and skills are craftable within the game. And in the beta specifically that I'm going to be talking about, the beta version, there was a very complicated crafting system associated with the guns and skills. It had a very interesting side effect, which I'll get into later, but what effectively happens out of it is that for everything that you craft, you have the standard durability pool out of a thousand. Every time you're in combat, you use that a bit. Every time you fire your gun, you use it a bit. Every time you use an ability, you use that a bit. Every time you get hit, I believe your durability took a small hit as well. And then you had on top of that a limited repair pool. So if a, if a gun had a thousand durability and you depleted it, it, would, it might still have numbers in the repair pool, which you can then put back into the durability pool. The reason this repair pool exists is because if an item drops from an enemy, it has zero repair pool. You have maximum repair pool if you craft your own um, gun or skill. Does this make sense so far? It does. So basically, if I'm reading your, if I'm hearing your explanation right, even you're incentivized to make your own weapons because your own weapons will be able to last exponentially longer than collected weapons. But it does mean that no matter what, every weapon has a shelf life. Absolutely. That's when I first realized that it was kind of terrifying. It makes using good weapons and skills so scary. But Firefall is supposed to be like a sort of post-apocalyptic setting, right? Like it's yes. supposed to be resources a scarce world. Yes, absolutely. So it does play into that, which I really, really loved. Now, let's make this a bit more interesting. So I said you can craft your guns and skills. The ability to do so comes from collecting resources from the world, as you might imagine. However, these resources is are primarily uh, minerals and gases that you have to mine out of the earth itself. Standard things like aluminum, copper, stuff like that, and some you know sci-fi metals. Pretty typical stuff. You mine this out of the world using thumpers. These are effectively, from a game design perspective, a portable mission. So you would scan the world and look for a resource vein and this would change dynamically as the game went on resource veins would spike and dip especially dip after it's been mined out so oftentimes you wouldn't be mining in the same location and when i said portal mission i mean this you call down a mining thump uh yeah a mining thumper from the sky which is just a mining drill that hits the ground and makes a lot of noise and that generates hostile interest local fauna will come out and try to kill you and specifically kill the thumper 
preventing you from gaining your resources. Does that make sense so far? Mostly. I'm not sure I can paraphrase it as eloquently as I did last time, though. Okay, let me try then. Uh, so you have this very neat design tool, in my opinion, which is a portable mission. You can go anywhere in the world and you can place it down and you get this, this event that will take a couple of minutes where things will attack an objective and you have to defend it. The reason you would do this is because there's resources in the world and you're trying to get it out of the world. Simple? That is simple. Cool. It's very neat as well because, uh, as I said, the resources ebb and flow. So after a certain period of time, some resources will replenish. But when you mine something out, you actually deplete that area of that resource. Now, these resources are what you use to craft your guns and skills. And there's rarity associated with these resources. This rarity was, they allowed for a lot of variance in this initial design. So an element could go from rarity of one to a rarity of a thousand, with a thousand being the best. And those will impact the final product. So making something with rarity thousand is much better than making something with rarity one. And as you might expect, high rarity metals attract more powerful enemies. So here's another consequence of the durability system. If you die, you lose 10% flat off of your 1000 durability. And that's a big deal. That drops very rapidly if you find yourself in a losing firefight. If you find yourself trying to take a point or accomplish a mission that's just a bit beyond yourself, that's quite a penalty if you've decided to use your good weapons, your good gear. Now, here's an interesting tug of war of desires again. Do you use your good gear to accomplish this mission that's hard? Or do you not and stand less chance of getting it done right? So that all kind of interplays very fascinatingly, in my opinion, especially because one of the hardest missions you could do at the time of this beta was the hardest mining missions. I never found myself in a position where I could comfortably wear my best gear out to this mining trip and expect to come back with more materials than I lost out of durability. I had to have a good day. It had to be a good mining spot. The spot you choose, because it's so dynamic, affects what kind of terrain you have to work with. Firefall is a very vertically capable game. I said it's a third-person shooter strapped to the back of your character or the feet of your character in some cases are jetpacks or jet boots, which meant that you have a lot of vertical control. And unfortunately, also means they can put things that are very annoying to deal with, such as sheer cliff faces and ledges, or sometimes even just open ground is bad, because sometimes those vertical terrain is usable to your advantage, where you can be on the high ground and shoot critters on the low ground as they come and attack you. So yes, uh, going back a bit towards the durability, with uh, with 1,000 off of your crafted, uh, off your durability pool, and 5,000 in your repair pool is the typical. So the average crafted weapon would last an extra five times as long as a as a as a weapon picked up. It put players in an interesting position. I believe the balance they were going for is that you should be able to conceivably replenish a weapon at about the 700 mark of rarity, a weapon and skill at the 700 mark. But if you wanted to craft yourself something in the eight or 900 range, you'd be sacrificing quite a bit of resources to get there. But those would be very powerful. Which feels great. Like as we've talked a few times, like it makes your special weapons feel special when you know that it's actually irreplaceable. Like you could never earn back what it took to make it almost. Yeah, that's right. I don't want to go too much into the complexity of how the crafting system works because that's more information than you need for this context. But I will kind of add this one note that different metals apply different properties to the thing that you're crafting. Which means that your weapons are always very unique to you, I guess, right? And even within yourself, each weapon you craft will be slightly different. So as an example, there will be certain metals that impact the cooldown of your abilities. This can be so extreme that I once saw a couple of people dueling and they had jet booster abilities and their cooldowns were so low that they didn't touch the ground for two minutes. They were just boosting in the air, trying to hit each other. Keeping in mind that normally you can boost in the air for about five seconds if your boosters are good three seconds normally as or three seconds when you first start the game so they had a lot of airtime due to the weapons and uh, more specifically the skills that they had so you had a lot of opportunity to like really push characters in very different directions but all this pushing to like extreme directions is inherently temporary nothing of this is permanent right 
Yep, you can easily, well, not easily. It would take quite a series of unfortunate events for you to find yourself out of any good weapons, gear, skills, etc. I guess we haven't talked about like optimal strategies and how all these durability systems are great at avoiding those. Yeah. But it stops any one thing from being too dominant because you know that eventually you're not going to have it anymore, which means that you always get to try all these different clever things. You come up with cool different things to craft, I assume. And you're always like pushing horizontally as opposed to just purely vertically. Yeah. The horizontal, the flat progression was a fascinating design decision that unfortunately went away when the game launched. Um, so even the people who played Firefall once it launched as a proper game wouldn't really have gotten a feel for that. It became much more of a standard MMORPG at that point with you know leveling and the ability to only really damage things around your level and lower. A bit unfortunate, but that's the nature of it. It became a bit more commercial of a product. I really, really appreciated the experimentation that went on in the beta. Yeah, and it sounds like a great experiment. And I can see why in an MMO, that can feel very scary. Because in MMOs, you invest so much time that if you were to invest even just a few hours into coming up with this really cool gear that then you only got to use for five encounters or six or however many, that would feel kind of bad. Even if it creates a lot of great payoffs and stress, I don't think people who play MMOs are coming would come to a game like that for that experience, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk a bit about design, right? So in MMORPGs, one of your desires, one of your goals as a player is some kind of permanence. That's why you want to play an MMORPG in the first place. You want this world where you can make this impact. You want to be able to log in, even if you haven't played for months or years, and go, my character's still here. My items are still here. I still remember all of this. This all still exists. So while the idea was very cool, it was definitely plagued by the impermanence of it. As odd as it is, as sad as it is, the impermanence being a core design there doesn't play nicely with a lot of desires that people have when approaching an MMORPG. I can see why it was scrapped and taken away. Yeah, and it's a real shame because like hearing about this system, not that I would play this because it's heavily based in first-person shooter mechanics and I just don't like those very much. I'm actually much more interested in that system than I am a pure vertical progression, but wasn't going to play it anyway. It's obviously not a good thing for me to be saying, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. I will lament the end of Firefall enough for a hundred people. It had a lot more going for it as well, but this is definitely one that I think stood out. I don't even think they had the best design for the system. I think uh, one to a thousand, that's probably a bit too large of a variance right there. That is... It's too abstract. And it's so unapproachable for a player what what am i doing what do these numbers mean and like the witcher the witcher 3 has this problem a little bit too like the numbers aren't that big but they're not clear how they work and this is when i think the big successes with fire emblem and riviera is that the numbers on those weapons are super clear as to what your choices do to the weapon the cause effect use it once use up one you've got 40 uses after you've done a few combats you know how long combats take and thus what that means and i think getting a feel for how much out of a thousand a combat that takes i imagine you get to that point but only if you constantly check it and it sounds like too large a number that you wouldn't actually keep checking it until it blinks red more or less it also varies if you do poorly you take more hits you lose more durability if you die you lose a significant chunk of durability oh that's right because not only just dying but you take durability on every hit right yeah and not a not a concrete amount or at least not a concrete amount that i ever found out it might have been documented somewhere But it's probably like a percentage of damage multiplied by whatever to get it to fit in that scale. I can also imagine that certain hits that hit harder might do more to durability. Like that could easily have been a mechanic in the game that I wasn't fully aware of. There's a huge variance with the system that I've described that Firefall had. And it was definitely way too large, way too unapproachable for people. But definitely an interesting experiment. Yeah, a really interesting experiment. And one that... I wish we'd see more of, although I guess not getting too far off topic, but a lot of the modern survival games do play with this a lot, with a strong emphasis on crafting and limitations. Like it's not to get too off topic, but it's kind of a thing that even Minecraft does. Although you can normally make things permanent if you have the right repair tools. Oh, okay. I thought that every... I guess you can repair things indefinitely in that game, right? I, I do believe so. I clearly don't know enough about Minecraft. Uh, neither do I. I... <laughs> 
I, that was that was a question more than a statement of fact. But we're not talking about Minecraft, so ignorance is okay here. Okay, I'm glad we've established that. Um, so yeah, that that really honestly wraps up a lot of what's interesting about the Firefall crafting system that existed only in the beta for a couple of years, but only in the beta. And thinking of games that tried a lot of things and not all of them worked, we've got the early Xbox 360 title, Dead Rising from Capcom, which was really interesting in a lot of ways. And because it was an early 360 title, it had a lot of public awareness around it. And it really tried to focus on two things, having a large amount of zombies on screen and having a large amount of interactable items. You might notice that unlike the other games on this list, it's not much of an RPG although it does have a very basic level up system. So this game has remarkably a durability system a lot like Breath of the Wild of all things, where you pick up random items scattered around the environment and they have fairly limited durability. Maybe like they'll survive one or two combat encounters but for the most part, you shouldn't expect weapons to be your friends for a long period of time. It also feels fairly scarce. Yeah, good items feel scarce, but there's a lot of items in the world. So you're trapped in a large mall with a lot of zombies for three days, and you're trying to save random horrible people. Well, some of them are nice, but they're mostly not the best of people. And you're not the best of people either, to be fair. No. Frank West is quite a character, but a good uh, a good person may, would not be an adjective I would use for him. So Dead Rising is really trying to encourage you to use a lot of different items against a lot of fairly uninteresting enemies to fight. So the interesting parts of Dead Rising's combat are more about what do you find and how do you use it? And so for that to work, you need a way to stop players finding one good item and just using it for the rest of the game. And that is not a problem in Dead Rising, as we said items wear out because items wear out really quickly and when you find a good item and you realize it's good you'll be like that's a good axe i'm gonna keep this axe and it makes sure that you keep your eyes peeled around the mall which for its time was a relatively large environment with a lot of detail compared to everything else that had come out the previous generation at that point it definitely made me unreasonably angry at the section of the mall where it's all clothing stores Admittedly, I'm angry at those in real life, so I definitely <laughs> like felt a great amount of empathy with my feelings about the game, my feelings about moles. Yeah, fair. So there's lots of weapons that seem pretty useless, but have some nifty applications like the toy swords have good range and you can use speedily. So everything like has a use, even if it's not super powerful. You can also use like a lot of random objects like park benches, frying pans. You're a scavenger. You get to scavenge around a mall filled with random junk. There's also some neat interactions like the frying pan. You can chuck it on a stove for a period of time and it'll heat up and then you'll have a hot frying pan. Yes, and a lot of things work how you would expect them to work. You find food, it heals you. You find jewellery, you can throw it at people because you couldn't really hit people with it. You find toy swords, like all the weapons work as you would intuitively expect, and when you find a way that things could interact, they probably work about how you expect. It's also kind of interesting to note the usefulness of things that aren't lethal, of which there are a lot in the game. There are a lot of things that are not lethal in the game. And it works because it's the old type of zombie. Dead Rising came out in 2006. It's from the era where zombies are, are slow and shambling for the most part. So anything that allows you to just kind of keep them at bay is still useful because they're not going to rush you down. You just need to make space around yourself, even if you can't kill them. Yeah, so the toy sword, as the example, like it swings fast, it pushes them out of the way. You can easily like get from A to B using your toy sword. And all these like weapon improvisations also lend a sense of catharsis when you find something really devastating. Like when you get the drive-in lawnmower or the chainsaw. You get chainsaws. It's suddenly this great burst of power that's really exciting and fun to play with that you know is not gonna last. But it's really enjoyable just having that moment to do all this with. It's definitely one of those systems that plays with limitation very well. Your items are very limited in its durability. You can respawn them by leaving an area and coming back in, and the, the store will be magically restocked. However, keep in mind, you have 72 hours in-game time. That's honestly really short amount of time. Spending time doing that, not very helpful. And Dead Rising encourages multiple playthroughs. It's more or less assumed that at the very least, your first 72-hour period, you will not save many people, and you want to play again with foreknowledge. 
And the fact that the mall has all these things, that second playthrough with lots of foreknowledge lets you sort of go, right, my plan is go to the mall, get these things, then get this thing from over here, and then tackle this quest, this quest, and this quest. Items also have drastically different durability values. Some things last a fair amount of time. Like, Toy Sword is decently durable. As you said before, it'll get you point A to point B. That's actually quite a lot of zombie hitting. The Chainsaw, which can kill zombies in one hit, it got me, like, five meters down the concourse until it ran out because I killed zombies with it. Yep, and I think that really works because Dead Rising, by doing that, Dead Rising sort of tells you, like, you need to find non-conventional solutions to your problems because finding the obvious problem to a zombie horde, a chainsaw, will only get you a little way through. Whereas I was a big fan of using the gems from jewelry shops, which you could throw at a number of zombies to hit a bunch of them and then walk past them easily. The stun that zombies incur in the game is quite large. Anytime you get them to stun, they're not likely to go for a grab on you for, for actually quite a lot of seconds. Yeah, getting hit is... Almost a choice in a lot of situations, unless they're really bad situations. Yeah, absolutely. The The game is really well-crafted in terms of that experience. It's from an era where Capcom was really good at the weird, limited gameplay style thing. And honestly, having played even some of the sequels, Dead Rising has a very unique feel to it. It's much more scarce. They're much more willing to let you look for the things you need. And things only really exist where they make sense in a mall. You don't just find, like, chainsaws randomly. There isn't... 50 sporting goods stores in this mall because you can get good stuff out of it because it's convenient for the player, you know? And that is really good and helps sell, like, this location, this space, which you have to play, spend a lot of time in, and making the space intuitive really works. There are a few areas that are annoying to navigate, but for the most part, the mall itself and the main place that you're interacting a lot with the mall and the contents and the zombies, it makes a lot of sense. It feels like a mall to me, and while I haven't experienced an American mall, I assume that it matches even more how Americans might think of a mall. Although, it's made by a Japanese team, so that's not necessarily quite right either. <laughs> we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I, I can't speak to the Americanness of the mall either, so... I mean, it feels enough like a Japanese mall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of things make sense together. There's the food court section... There's the clothing store section. Yeah, but what I love most about Dead Rising is that because of the way that weapons break off, you are really forced to improvise. And that, I think, is the strength of a lot of these durability systems, which is kind of why I wanted to finish up with it, in that weapon durability systems force you to look at more options than you might look at in games without these kinds of systems. Forces you to actually play the game. As opposed to just find one dominant strategy. Yeah, and all these games really like demonstrate that. And I mean, The Witcher 3, arguably, is probably the game that's in this list the most likely to fall into dominant strategy situations. Because at some point, I assume money becomes more or less not too relevant to the choices of repairing weapons or not. You also just get better feel for the rhythm. You get a better understanding for how long you can push your durability. You just get better at the game. So... A nice way to reward players for understanding the game as well. That system becomes easier to manage. And in the Fire Emblem franchise, we sort of lean towards dominant strategies. We go progressively forward in it. Yeah, they actually actively introduce dominant strategies. You, you, it's very hard to get away from it when your weapons just are infinitely usable. But it starts off in the 2004 game as being like, you've got lots of different options. You have to always make different choices. Riviera presents a lot of complications and a lot of wrinkles that there is no like clear this is the right choice this is not the right choice kind of situation although there are always a few weapons that are never right choices the the right choice tends to be leveling up which means it tends to be using variety yeah the game really pushes variety at the very least and you also want to see what all your weapons do because every character uses them differently so the combination of novelty and just the minor bit of optimization means that you're always pushing to try different situations and different things out and then Firefall. Firefall did an experiment. Firefall really pushed how far, how much information players can retain about weapons and durability and pushed the idea of impermanence in an MMORPG. And that impermanence opens up quite a bit of playstyle, but ultimately was not marketable. And so they went in a different direction. A real shame. 
Yeah, it's a real shame. Absolutely. And yeah, and Dead Rising sort of gives you a large play space to just tinker and really does what it can with the durability system to try and encourage just lots of tinkering with things to find out the best way to use a large collection of diverse resources. And I think that's more or less all we have to say about item durability. That's everything I have to say at this point. We covered quite a bit here. I hope people get a better understanding of what durability does for a game, that they can be a bit more swayed that it's not just something to make life more difficult for the player, that it adds to a game experience, that there's a lot of value in the complications that durability provides, and that there are quite a couple of good examples out there of how to do it well. Are you summed up exactly how I wanted to sum up? So you've stolen my thunder there. I'm sorry. <laughs> but yeah, there's lots of good reasons to use item durability. And as a player, they're not always, they don't always feel great, but they do ultimately make your play experience feel a lot better. And I hope that something else that makes you feel better is maybe interacting with us. If you'd like to talk to us at all, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, you can email us and all those details will be in the show notes. And we look forward to um, talking with you again or talking at you again, I should say, in about a month's time. Thank you for listening. The song Random Thoughts by Audiobinger, used for the start and end credits here, is used under the attribution non-commercial license. Find links to Audiobinger and our social media in the show notes. 